Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. It's been a busy week in Israel with the news coming fast and furious. A deadly raid in Jenin intended to foil a large-scale terror attack killed nine Palestinians, followed by two terror attacks in East Jerusalem that killed seven people outside a synagogue. And that was followed by strikes against targets in Iran and Syria that the foreign media was attributing to Israel. All of this comes against the background of ongoing worry and mass protests against the changes to the judicial system being pushed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his Justice Minister Yariv Levine. And then, in a case of perfect timing, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken landed in the middle of it all. We'll try to make sense of this today. Later in the podcast, Haaretz Deputy Editor Noah Landau will talk about the intersection between the security threats and the ongoing protest movement. But before that, I'll ask my first guest about the multiple developments in the military and security arena. He's uniquely equipped to address them. Major General Tamir Heyman is the Managing Director of the Institute for National Security Studies and the former head of Israeli military intelligence. Major General Heyman, welcome to Haaretz Weekly. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So it's been a busy, almost an overwhelming past week with so many major developments on multiple security fronts. But let's start with the freshest, and most people are treating it as the biggest news. The Wall Street Journal was the first to report that Israel carried out a successful attack against an advanced weapon system factory in the Iranian city of Isfahan that was overnight between Saturday and Sunday using suicide drones. And the same night, Iran's state TV said a fire broke out at an oil refinery in an industrial zone near the city of Tabriz. Now, all of the U.S. media cited Pentagon officials as stressing that this was Israel. It was not the United States. It was not the two countries in coordination. So from the location of Isfahan, is it clear to you, Tamir, exactly what Israel was targeting? And what do you make of this refinery fire? First of all, nobody said it was Israel, and I'm not going to acknowledge their responsibility. And I highly recommend that we will keep the what we call operational activities under the table and in a very vague manner. I think the clarity is against the Israeli interest. We are trying to create deterrence, and ambiguity is a crucial factor and principle in deterrence and the fact of the matter that everybody rushes to the media and starts to hint whether what's done and who's responsible it's a bad it's against Israel interest and it's against United States interests whoever was target knows exactly why it was target and what's the responsibility he carries and Iran as a matter of fact in Isfahan is a center focal point of multiple military plants and industry regarding the nuclear project, regarding advanced missiles, and regarding drones. So any kind of breaking the confidence over the penetration to the Iranian uh, capability is important in order to create what we call a credible military threat. This is something that is so missing in our current strategy against Iran. So without regarding to the incident itself, I think any kind of that activity against Iran is crucial in the current times. 
the finger pointing happened mostly at the Pentagon, though. It was the Pentagon officials saying pretty much it wasn't us, it wasn't us, and point leading the U.S. media to Israel, which is how the reports were uh, were so widely um, distributed that this was Israel behind it. But barely was this report of the drone attack digested when in Syria near the Iraqi border, aircraft atta- attacked an oil tanker that was loaded with weapons and ammunition of Iranian-backed militias, and later aircraft attacked a convoy of trucks and an Iranian-backed militia leader and two of his escorts were killed in a drone airstrike. So assuming everyone is right in their assumptions and finger-pointing, which obviously for uh, for operational point uh, purposes, you, you don't want necessarily specified. But do you feel like this cluster of attacks, I mean, this is within 48 hours pretty much. Is this a question of opportunity or is some kind of message being sent? I think it's coincidence. And I think this is all different situation. First of all, regarding what you said about the Americans. The Americans, it's an ongoing tradition. They don't want to pay for meals that they haven't cooked by themselves. So if another entity was responsible to the attack, they will not volunteer to accept the retaliation by the Iranians. So it's not new. Um, But I think, if I may, in a bit of criticism, the situation in Iran is new, and we need new policy. And whatever worked in the past, we now should adjust ourselves. And creating that kind of clarity hints to the Iranian side that we are afraid from your retaliation. And we should strongly present common line that we are not afraid. The capabilities are they, they will try to retaliate, but our capabilities are better than theirs, and they are very tied up in the areas where they can retaliate from, and we should not really be so anxious and very eager to clear the situation. Regarding what's happened in Syria, well, the former chief of staff, General Kohabi, has outspoken it in a conference in Elzelia. He specifically described the... Uh, uh, the convoy and the truck number eight as the tools to show how our intelligence is so accurate. This was in December when it was very unusual, right, for him to admit Israeli involvement in, uh, in such an attack. It was highly unorthodox to, to do that, but he has his own reason. Because of what he said, I can speak more freely about that. The situation is time-critical attack over weapon convoys that are driving from Iran through Iraq to Syria, what we call the ground line of communication. And whenever we detect strategic weapons that can change the equilibrium in in front of Syria, we need to attack quickly. And we do not want to attack in Iraq because Iraq is crucial and fragile and the Americans are doing a very good job there and we don't want to interfere with the job. They are trying to contain government that is more pro-Iranian than the past. So we are operating just in Syria. But after saying that, that doesn't mean that the retaliation won't be against Americans. So it needs to be very much coordinated in that aspect. And this is has dual advantage. One is the operational advantage. If you're attacking and the retaliation is against your ally, you should prepare them for that. But more important is the strategic effect, creating coordination between Israel 
and United States. Although Israel carries the, that kind of attack, it's important because it's CENTCOM, Central Command of America, and it will be the same coordination needed in an event when we will need to operate against Iran. So that kind of a mechanism is very important to maintain. And I point to the fact of the recent large joint exercise that was done, joint from IDF and uh, the Armed Forces of the United States, who was really, as published, was one of a kind in, in the scale, its unprecedented scale. This is also important in order to project the cooperation between the two armies. You say that the situation has changed in Iran, that something is new. Can you point to exactly what you believe is new? The Iran project is in an unprecedented situation. They have enough enriched uranium for, uh, for atomic bombs. They are not still in a military-grade uranium, that is 90% uh, enrichment, but 60% and 20% it's enough. It used to be a red line in the past. We told ourselves that we will do whatever needed in order to block Iran from getting to the position that we have, are now in. Just remind you, why we objected the JCPOA because we said that in the sunset clause, Iran will be permitted to advance the nuclear capability up to the scale of a, a nuclear threshold state. And, and it has done so without the JCPOA. Regarding Israeli-U.S. Um, cooperation and their relationship regarding Iran, the fact that, as you say, the JCPOA is basically dead, President Biden has essentially admitted that there's almost zero chance that the United States will return to some kind of Iran deal in the near future, and the new dynamic regarding the fact that Russia is using Iranian weaponry in Ukraine, has all of this put Israel and the U.S. on the same page to a greater extent than in the past in terms of Iran? It puts Iran in a very bad position regarding the United States and the Western world. Israel didn't really need the evidence in order to point out that Iran is the core problem of the Middle East and that malign activities in regional and nuclear aspect is the main problem of the Middle East. But supporting Russia in the unlegal, unhumane attack over Ukraine puts Iran in the neighborhood of the very bad people of the world. And that kind of support really blocks and, and blocks United States from any kind of compromise regarding nuclear or regional aspect. And the second aspect that has changed is the riots. The brutal manner, the way that the Iranian regime crippled those riots in the streets of, of, of Iran. Those two elements is, uh, I think, narrowing the gaps between the strategy of Israel and the strategy of United States towards Iran. But although narrowed, there is no comprehensive, efficient plan B in our strategy towards nuclear Iran. You touched on the issue of uh, retaliation for uh, the most uh, recent uh, events in Iran. An unnamed Iranian source was quoted on Al Jazeera as being very threatening, saying that Israel knows very well it will receive a response, that it's playing with fire, that it will get burned. Do you know exactly what we can expect, what the intelligence apparatus will be on the lookout for in terms of retaliation? 
we can examine what happened in the past and to try to assess the freedom of action of Iran. First of all, nobody will stick its neck for Iran from its neighbors and allies. Not Lebanon, not Syria, not Yemen. Nobody will really take the chance on retaliation in the name of Iran. So they will end up retaliating by themselves. They can retaliate from Iran by cyber capabilities. They've tried it numerous times. Their capability is rather medium. They can try what we call foreign terror activities, try to assassinate Israeli rank personnel or, or any Israelis. They've tried to do it numerous times in Europe, in Turkey, etc., etc. They can try UAVs. They will not use, I think, rockets, direct rockets from Iran to Israel can lead to a full escalation of retaliation and they will not take the chance. They know that uh, war with Israel is uh, maybe can lead them to war with United States and they will not take that chance. But UAVs, drones uh, towards maybe ships in the Arab Sea, maybe long-range drones, small drones that will try to uh, attack uh, military industry inside Israel as a retaliation. That's the scale of activities that we're going to see. So turning from one security front to another, from Iran to the Palestinians, last week we saw a raid in Jenin that Israel said was meant to foil a terror attack in which nine Palestinians were killed. This was followed by two intercepted rocket launches from Gaza, and then over the weekend, two separate terror attacks in Jerusalem, one of which was particularly deadly. With Ramadan approaching in March and a far right-wing government in place that is rattling its sabers, Uh, Can we expect some kind of escalation? We can expect the escalation without, with no connection to the current government, with no connection to the recent event. All of the signals in the Palestinian scenery is pointing to a a high potential of escalation. Uh, There are gas fumes in the airs that, and and most of the vectors are negative and combined into what we call the perfect storm. And the different vectors are one is the lack of hope and prosperity for a huge number of youth, most of them educated, unemployed. Lots of them cannot work in Israel because they are involved in some kind of activities against Israel and they are young. Second, above it, is the corruption in the authority of the Palestinian authorities, in all of the establishment of the Palestinian authority. Uh, due to bribe, due to uh, all kinds of corruptions. Uh, that, that creates tensions and weakness in the structure of the Palestinian establishment, and it creates tensions inside families of the old Fatah uh, political party, which is the essence, which is the, the creator of the Palestinian Authority. And third is what we call approaching the days of after Abu Mazen. Abu Mazen, 86 years old, is not getting any younger, and uh, no successor was appointed. And all of those victors may lead to a successor's battle of his heritage. And all we need is those fumes being lit by uh, unilateral steps by Israeli government that may be planned by the coalition agreement. Hopefully it will not be practical by legislation, such as the changing the status quo in the Temple Mount or some kind of unilateral 
annexation. Or maybe, as we speak, there is a growing tension in the area of prisoners. There is now a situation evolving as we speak regarding the changing of the condition of a few female prisoners in the, in the prison, and this is another potential escalation factor. Having said all that, we are approaching Ramadan in a matter of two months, and Ramadan every year is a very fragile situation, very fragile time of year, so we can expect something of violence in the near future. If I may say, examining the situation of the last uh, weekend, uh, we can say something good regarding the operational concept of how we deal with the threats in the Palestinian arena. We separate the problems into three separated problems, and each problem carries different t- t- uh, tactics in how to tackle the challenge. In Jenin, we use the excellent intelligence we have and the operational capabilities to move in daylight and to capture terror organizations that are about to carry attack before the attack is carried. Towards Gaza, if Gaza launches missiles, we intercept the missiles and we retaliate kinetically without entering to Gaza. We withdraw from Gaza and we are not penetrating there in order to solve the problems there. And in the case of terror of East Jerusalem, this is a very sensitive, problematic because we are talking about Israeli citizens of Arab Israeli citizens from Eastern Jerusalem who are carrying out those attacks and we have restrictions over intelligence regarding Israeli civilians and we want to keep those restrictions so it's harder to locate and preemptive uh, what we call a lone wolf attack. So three aspects of the same problems and three methods in order to tackle them. My final question is about your organization's 2023 report, the INSS 2023 report. Every year, you point to the greatest threat that Israel is facing. In previous years, you've cited Iran, the Syrian war, Hezbollah's missile project. And this year, uh, the report warns that the greatest threat is a deterioration in foreign relations, particularly with the United States, mainly due to the new Netanyahu government's attempt to weaken the judiciary. That's a really unusual choice for an organization focused on security. I mean, you know, I won't be too flip about it and ask if we have more to fear from Yariv Levine than we have from Iran or Hezbollah. But can you explain to me why there was that choice for uh, for the greatest threat facing the country right now? First of all, we haven't mentioned Yariv Levine, of course. We have just point out the fact that in order to tackle, in order to achieve what the necessary effect in the current challenges of 23, we need America on outside. And we are observing the long-term threat of the gap that can be opened between Israel and the United States in terms of what we call the special relationship, referring to the common values and common interests. We don't think that there will be any change in common interests. Israel will still be ally of the United States in the Middle East. But Special relationship based on values is stronger, and, the, and we need the United States in a stronger manner. 
And in order to avoid the fact that in five years from now, we, we will say that it, we should have worked five years ago because it's a long-term process. We give the early alert now, we say it's a long-term threat, but it's a crucial to the Israel national security defense concept. And practically, if we want to deal with Iran, we need cooperation with the United States today. If eruption will happen in the Palestinian Authority, the pictures that will go out to the public, to the international media will be, I know how it will look like. We will have a struggle on legitimacy. We need United States on our side in the veto in the National Security Council and to navigate between China and United States over exporting technical capabilities of Israel. We are a high-tech nation. China is our third trade partner in the world. We are relying on United States. We cannot divorce ourselves from China, and we need clever navigation between the two of them. We are not hedging. We are not on the fence. We are in United States side in the great power competition, and we are on the liberal democratic side in the struggle against Russia in Ukraine. But we are in a more delicate situation in the Middle East, bordered by capabilities of Russia in Syria, trying to navigate the trade. We need full coordination in the United States. And if it will not be because of something internal, it's a crucial threat. Major General Tamir Heyman, Managing Director of the Institute for National Security Studies, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Haaretz Weekly is supported by the journal Sapir, a favorite of business leaders, policymakers, and philanthropists. From Editor-in-Chief Brett Stevens, Sapir's quarterly magazine offers thought-provoking, heterodox, and practical ideas on how to create a thriving Jewish future. Featuring essays by today's leading Jewish voices, including Anshel Pfeffer, Howard Jacobson, Dara Horn, and Anat Wilf. Visit sapirjournal.org to read the new issue on culture and thought-provoking past issues on Zionism, education, cancellation, social justice, and more. Explore urgent ideas and perhaps gain a new perspective on Jewish issues and the Jewish community. Visit sapirjournal.org. That's S-A-P-I-R-Journal.org. Coming up, Haaretz Deputy Editor Noah Landau. Welcome, Noah Landau, Deputy Editor of Haaretz and the former Editor-in-Chief of the Haaretz English Edition. Thanks for coming. Hi, thank you. Over the past weekend, two Jerusalem terror attacks tragically claimed seven lives. One of the attacks, a gunman opened fire outside a synagogue, and this came after an IDF raid into Jenin killed nine Palestinians, and two rockets were fired from Gaza into southern Israel and were intercepted. So all of these security military events made things really complicated for those who are fighting against the government's extreme judicial reforms. On Saturday night, the fourth set of massive demonstrations against the reforms was scheduled, set to take place in Tel Aviv and across the country. And on the same day, the Netanyahu government called for solidarity for the opposition to give the government a safety net of support to present a united front as Israel is threatened by terror, basically saying this is not the time to demonstrate against your government. Noah, you wrote a piece in which you said this represented a moment of truth for the protest movement. Why did you see it that way? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, in Israel, um, it's a very militaristic society, and there's always a tendency that when the cannons roar, um, 
everyone's uh, requested, you know, to stay silent, to keep silent. And uh, for the protest, it was a moment of truth because um, they were asked basically to postpone or to stop their protest uh, because of the uh, situation uh, regarding the uh, escalation uh, security-wise. And in Israel, you know, anyone who's been following this podcast and in general, you know, it's never a good time to uh, criticize the government if you think that uh, when the cannons war, it's not a good time. Then it, it basically means that you can never protest or criticize the authorities. So I thought it would be an opportunity to see, you know, if people actually listen to that to that demand. And this uh, last Saturday, uh, we saw that there were indeed less people in the demonstrations. Um, I'm not sure it was uh, solely because of the terror attacks. Uh, I think there were also, you know, it's the fourth time that people are uh, coming to these demonstrations Uh, in Tel Aviv, there were also other demonstrations across the country that could people could attend. Uh, there was also a, a sport event. Very <laughs> which, important. Yeah, you know, well, sometimes uh, that comes before protest, unfortunately. So I'm not sure that was the only reason that there were less people, but still, nonetheless, it was tens of thousands. So it wasn't a few. Was there a real debate among the protest organizers or among, you know, people in general across social media as to whether or not to do this? Was there really a moment where people considering calling off the protest because of what was happening? Well, there are some voices that were questioning, um, you know, n not stopping the, the protest, but the, the question of timing, basically. Uh, but it ended with a decision to show respect for the Fallens at the, be the beginning of the event. And um, they canceled the music performances, which in any case, I think is weird, you know, that the demonstration <laughs> is a... It's a music festival, you know. It's not, if people are really angry that they march in the streets and they shout, it's not about, you know, the music. So I think there was a moment there. Um, but I think the bigger question and the bigger moment of truth is, uh, you know, the longer term. The question whether really, if, if the situation now really escalates, if we really see that the violence is becoming more and more um, severe, then there's really a question if this protest will, will, will actually continue. It's a debate because obviously, you know, even if this particular round ends, it's going to, uh, it's going to happen again. And uh, how do you think the protest movement can respond to it, uh, you know, sensitively and yet forcefully? Well, I think the most important point is that what are people actually demonstrating about? They're demonstrating against um, a, a judicial uh, so-called reform that is actually designed um, to, I mean, from my perspective, from a liberal perspective, to actually worsen the situation on the ground security-wise. I mean, this far-right government, I think, wants to make uh, the situation on the ground worse. And that's actually an inherent part of the, of the protest. It's not separated It's not that we have two issues, the issue of the judiciary and the issue of security. No, the security is part of, of uh, what they're actually now part of the problem that this government is now challenging us with. And I think the way they're going to handle this escalation on the ground is by basically pouring gasoline on it. So uh, it's part of the demonstration uh, in terms of the content, not only in terms of tactics. A direct connection can be made between 
the implications of these judicial reforms if they go through and the kinds of actions that uh, will be permitted in response to uh, to terror attacks. Uh, for example, um, being able to deport family members of, uh, of Palestinians who, who commit uh, terror attacks. So you draw a logical line right between uh, one and the other and therefore think that there's more of an obligation to demonstrate. So basically, this whole uh, so-called reform is um, designed uh, to make Israel more Jewish than democratic, more nationalistic. So the way that this government is responding to the crisis is, again, a part of the way that they see the future of Israel being more nationalistic, more Jewish than democratic. And the demonstration is about keeping those liberal democratic values within Israel's identity. So this is, again, why this demonstration, and again, th- doesn't contradict the fact that the situation uh, is escalating on the ground. Do you feel like there's a double standard between whether it's all right in times of tension uh, for the right to get out on the streets and demonstrate and for the left to get out on the streets and demonstrate? Yes, of course. The right is always allowed to protest because they're protesting for even more, uh, you know, severe measure, a more nationalistic punishments and and revenge, basically. And you're never allowed to go to the streets and say the opposite. But look at how the right wing is actually using this situation now to blame uh, basically all the uh, legal advisors uh, to this government in, in what's happening, claiming, you know, that their legal standards are actually holding back the government from dealing with the situation. So they are allowed to use the situation and the fact that people are being killed to advance their agenda, but you're not allowed to demonstrate against it. And, you know, each side is using it, obviously, to uh, to emphasize its point, and it does make the points of both sides stronger. So did you see the movement living up to its moment of truth over the weekend? You said, you know, obviously the numbers were down for a variety of reasons. You've been to every demonstration every week and watched what's going on um, you know, as a journalist as well as uh, being in the, in the demonstration. Are you worried about protest fatigue? How do you, how do you feel this, this movement is continuing? What do, you, what do you see? Well, I think the, uh, the demonstrations are not the only protest. In that sense, we also see all these various uh, groups that are forming in Israeli society, uh, warning from um, the implications of these so-called reforms. So we have people, you know, in the high-tech industry, economical experts, you have uh, people in universities, you have different groups in Israeli societies, and they're all doing, you know, uh, they don't only demonstrate, but they also issue statements. Uh, um, Some of them, there was even a strike um, in in, um, high-tech workplaces. So I think there are all sorts of measures, and I, I don't think that they will necessarily end now because of what's happening, but I do think, you know, if things really escalate, if we see an actual, you know, war, if we see missiles, yes, it might affect it. Do you see it affecting the um, severity or the um, motivation of the government to continue pushing these reforms through so quickly if we're faced with some sort of serious security situation? Well, listen, the government has a majority. They could legislate whatever they want, whenever they want, and they don't which I think is a sign that this protest is somehow, you know, has some kind of an impact. The fact that they still haven't done this, it means that there's a reason that they're not doing it. Um, But I also don't think that there'll be a moment where they'll actually say, okay, you guys win, or okay, we're dropping this. They'll never admit that. 
I mean, the best scenario is that maybe there'll be some sort of a committee, which in Israeli or, you know, in Hebrew, it basically means let's bury the issue. You know, that's that's the best scenario, I think. Um, but they'll never just say, you know, okay, the protest wins. We've had some glimmers of uh, overseas uh, comments, criticisms on these judicial reforms. There's now a letter from uh, U.S. legal scholars. Uh, we've heard some uh, economic experts, mostly Israeli, but uh, but also international, talk about you know the damage this is going to do to Israel's you know economic rating, standing in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel like any of this? backlash from abroad could affect Netanyahu uh, any more or any more seriously than the uh, the criticism from within? Well, Netanyahu always has that um, self-image as a person of the world. He's, um, you know, he grew, grew up in America or at least you know, he studied there also. He has, you know, uh, his self-narrative is also um, very American and liberal in the classical sense. Small L. American, yeah, uh, liberal. So I think it, it does have a certain effect, but it's not the thing that will actually um, influence him the most because you have to remember that Netanyahu has a very uh, complicated personal situation with his own um, legal situation. And, you know, when you maybe face jail... Whatever people are writing about you in the New York Times is not the most important thing. Right, right. Noah Landau, deputy editor of Haaretz, thanks for coming on Haaretz Weekly. Thank you, Alison. And that's it for this edition of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks to my guests and to my producer and editor, Dan Brumer and Nahara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>